This is an ABC podcast. A quick warning, this episode touches on the topic of suicide. Take care while listening. Mandy's mother has always had a controlling streak. When she was 10 years old, her mum got a job at her school, which is a bit of a nightmare scenario for most kids anyways, but her mother used her presence in a peculiar way. My mother was telling me who I was and I wasn't allowed to be friends with. She was prohibiting most people I made friends with. So she would actually leave her post during my lunchtime to see who I was hanging out with and if I was following her orders. Mandy quickly realized this wasn't normal. Because I was like, well, nobody else's mom is coming in here and checking to see who they're friends with. In her teens, Mandy's mother threw her a big, expensive birthday party, which doesn't sound so bad, but she really, really didn't want one. So in Brazil, we have a tradition where we have a large party when somebody is 15 and they're coming in to be a woman and etc. It's usually a very expensive party. I kept telling her, I, I really don't want to do this. And she said, no, but I'm missing out on this experience. And it was funny because it's very clearly a party that's not for the parent, it's for the child. And so she set up this whole party, did it all from her own way. And you know, that's not completely unhealthy in and of itself. But when you notice that in a pattern of behavior, it becomes very interesting. Mandy is now in her late 20s, and until a few years ago, her mother was still trying to control what she wore, going as far as to pre-approve what she could buy. There was one day where I was wearing an outfit that she didn't like the combination, and she started freaking out to the point where she went up to the door and blocked my exit. She would not allow for me to leave the house, and she seemed so genuinely frightened of us somehow presenting in a way that wasn't acceptable to her. And that scared me a little bit because I was like, she could escalate based on these incredibly small things. Call them narcissistic, bullying, abusive. Whatever they're like, difficult parents can have a lasting impact on us, our future relationships, and our very sense of self. Mandy has faced many such struggles. And while we don't get to pick our parents, we can try and heal or move on or be different. Whatever helps us process the experience. It's that kind of work that Lindsay Gibson specializes in. She's a clinical psychologist and author of two books on what she calls emotionally immature parents. As human beings, we have deep, deep needs for connection and for being seen by the people that we belong to. And when the parent can't engage at a deep enough emotional level, that child is left in a place of emotional loneliness. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar, and today, the damage done by emotionally immature parents and how to recover. How common are emotionally immature parents in your experience? Well, I don't have any research on the demographics of them, unfortunately. That would be a whole other lifetime. But I became aware of them through my work in psychotherapy with people who came in and would talk about their parents in such a way that I was astounded at the immaturity of their behaviors. And as I'm listening to them, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it's 
you know, her father's acting like a four-year-old or, you know, her mother sounds like a 14-year-old. And so I became aware that a lot of the clients that I was seeing, once we started talking about their family dynamics, it became very clear that they were dealing with parents who psychologically actually were not as healthy as the patient sitting in my office who had come for psychological care. And that was fascinating to me. It was like, why are these people in psychotherapy? And yet in their description of their parents, the parents clearly have much more serious problems. And in fact, are projecting a lot of blame and negativity onto my client, which is really confusing them and contributing to their symptoms, you know, such as depression and anxiety. So it was fascinating to me that what I was seeing was this general characteristic of emotional immaturity. Within that umbrella of emotional immaturity, Lindsay also realised these parents often followed more specific patterns of behaviour. So she developed a loose typology to describe them. There are four types of emotionally immature parents. The first type is what we call the emotional parent. They approach the world from their emotions first. These parents can be very volatile, even hysterical, Lindsay says. Everything is a big deal. Everything is a big reaction. They get exhausted from that. They exhaust the people around them. And people feel like they're walking on eggshells with them all the time. The second type is the driven parent. Now, this is the parent that, to the external world, they look like the most normal parent. In fact, they may even look like the kind of perfect parent because they're very driven towards success. These parents pack their kids' schedules with all kinds of activities. They might have advanced degrees and expect the same from their children. But when it comes down to matters of the heart and emotional attachment, these driven parents like can't stop long enough to really get down on the child's level and connect with them. They're also very perfectionistic. They're hard to be around. The next type is the rejecting parent. And the rejecting parent is just exactly what it sounds like. I mean, you wonder why this person ever had children in the first place. Because they can be very taciturn and withdrawn, but there's a aura about them of stay away from me. And finally, there's the passive parent. And this one is a little bit tricky, but it's an important category because lots of times the other three types, they will end up with a passive type because the passive type really lets the other three get away with murder. They don't step in to protect the child. They tend not to make a fuss. At the same time, they're often the favorite parent because they can be fun-loving, they can be warm. Is the damage these various types of emotionally immature parents inflict essentially the same, or is there you know, one or two types that are most damaging to most people? Well, within each of these, of course, there is a spectrum of severity. So you could have a very severe emotional parent 
who would be truly a wild ride. And, and oftentimes these people are at the extremes. They can become very abusive because they're so emotional. And then you can have another parent who, for instance, a rejecting type, who sounds awful, but yet they might be milder. For Mandy, her mother's emotional volatility did cross the line into abuse. But it took her a while to fully understand and accept this. I think there were various light bulb moments. I think one thing many people don't realize is that generally we are very poorly educated on what abuse is. I think everyone thinks it's such a heavy word. People are so hesitant to use it or to label their parents as such. And just a lot of people don't realize there are so many forms of abuse. There's emotional abuse, there's psychological abuse, there's financial abuse, and it doesn't have to be physical for it to count as abuse. And I think also what a lot of people don't realize is that it doesn't have to be incredibly severe for it to be hurtful, for it to have long-lasting consequences, and for somebody to reasonably set boundaries around it. One of the things Mandy's mother put pressure on her about was her weight, so much so that she developed an eating disorder from the age of 11 to 15. Weight was an obsession that stemmed from her mother's own insecurities. My mother moved to the United States and she became obese to the point where she had to have bariatric surgery. And she was always incredibly controlling of what I was eating, always watching at every move. Part of that insecurity led me to a period in my teens where I was suicidal for quite a long time. And I had a suicide attempt when I was 15. And looking back, I just think it's very interesting when I see photos of myself. I look so tiny. I look so young. And it's weird to think that's when I first started starving myself because somebody told me I wasn't good enough or that I was too fat. Mandy says she was also constantly walking on eggshells at home, trying to manage or moderate her mother's behavior. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes that can create a false sense of intimacy with the abuser. Something that a lot of people don't realize is that abuse is actually a cycle. You know, these events will happen, these fights will happen, and then there are phases of calm, phases of reconciliation, which is what keeps victims around. A lot of people think, well, it's not abuse because my parents are nice to me sometimes. And it's like, well, it doesn't mean there isn't a pattern of abuse happening and that there's a cycle there that is continuing. And so, yeah, we had good moments, definitely. And a lot of people thought we had a good relationship, but really there was no willingness to respect me when I brought up any issues. There was zero willingness to, to make any changes in behavior, really. And that's when I realized, well, these good moments, they're not really defining our relationship in any way. And they're not really worth anything if I'm not being respected as a person when it's important. Given how crucial our relationships with our parents are, it's no surprise how they treat us can have a lasting impact on our emotional well-being. Psychologist Lindsay Gibson says there are a few common ways this can play out. I would say that the, the most common impact that these parents have on their adult children is an underlying sense of emotional loneliness. This was something that people really reverberated with in the book. You know, I'm part of a family. You know, I may even know that I'm loved. But, oh my gosh, 
there must be something wrong with me because I feel so lonely. So that's the biggest characteristic. But when they get to be adults, you really start seeing some of the long-range impact of having parents that can't respond to you emotionally. And one of them is that you learn to kind of deny your own needs and how things affect you because it really doesn't make a difference to the parent. So you get taught to disconnect from your own instincts and feelings. They teach you to doubt yourself and mistrust your emotional needs. And you can imagine how that plays out later when that person has to figure out what they want to do for a living or decide who to marry, you know, all these things that have to come from an internal sense of guidance. Lindsay says these children often grow up to have unsatisfying relationships too. Because they aren't used to emotional intimacy because their parents weren't interested in that. And so they have a hard time letting others see the real you, so to speak. They tend to be passive and put others first. And worst of all, they're used to settling for people who make them feel invisible or inadequate. So I've had a lot of um, adult children who've come in ready to get a divorce because they have married someone who was really very self-centered and that they couldn't get actually close to. But that felt normal to them when they got married. The other dynamic Lindsay often sees is that children of emotionally immature parents end up feeling responsible for other people's emotions. So they feel guilty and responsible if someone else is unhappy, and they make a point of monitoring the other person's moods to the point where they bite their tongue and make it all about keeping the other person happy. So all those things are very self-defeating when you grow up and you're trying to create a life of your own as an individual. Mandy isn't a client of Lindsay's, but what Lindsay describes is very similar to the impact Mandy says her parents have had on her. She finally moved out of her parents' home last year and has since started seeing a therapist. My trauma response is actually a fairly common one, uh, which is kind of developing this very anxious attachment style. When you're used to emotional neglect to some extent, sometimes... When somebody comes along and treats you well, with even a little bit of ounce of respect, it can be easy to put them on a pedestal. When really they're doing the bare minimum, it's just that you're not used to the bare minimum. And so there's this weird stage where you start interacting with other people. It's easy to become incredibly attached to people, to always need reassurance. So that's definitely something I've been working on, not only with romantic relationships, with platonic relationships as well. I've been a people pleaser for many years because sometimes a trauma response isn't just like having panic attacks. Sometimes it's also like, well, I'm going to get used to being a people pleaser because I just want to lessen the conflict. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar, and today, the damage done by what psychologist Lindsay Gibson calls emotionally immature parents. Mandy started grappling with the impact her parents had on her emotional development in her 20s. But for many of Lindsay's clients, it's often not till later in life that they start to process their childhoods. 
generally speaking, in the 30s and 40s tend to be sort of prime ages when people begin to turn their attention to their own psychology, because that's when you're kind of really in the thick of adult life and your intimate relationships, your marriage, your relationships with your children, those are beginning to maybe remind you of things from your own childhood. You're trying to make it in the work world, perhaps. And so your individuality becomes very important because you're, you're, you know, you're crafting your own life. And, and again, with the clients that you've worked with over the years, do you find that they're starting to see that they're repeating the same patterns their parents had with their own kids? And that's what worries them? Two things. Yes, <laughs> that's the first one. And the second one is that little children of course, will stir up your own emotions incredibly. (laughs) You know, they really make you reactive. And if that child is expressing her needs and that parent, who is the adult child of an emotionally immature parent, is sort of thinking, oh my gosh, I was never allowed to do that. Is my, is my kid really disturbed or what's going on here? And it's very, very threatening to them. And this is normal childhood behavior, right? But if you weren't raised to be able to acknowledge your own needs, that can be really hard to take in your own child. It sort of sparks a reevaluation of what happened to them in their childhood. I know you don't have any research on this, but like anecdotally or just across your own work, do you have a sense of how common it is for parents to be failing in this aspect with their children? You know, like are most of us ill-equipped to sort of meet the emotional needs of our children? Well, I think it's actually pretty common (laughs) because I think emotional immaturity, at least in my estimation, and believe me, as I said, I do not have official research on this, but when you read the news or you you hear about how things are going with children and children's needs, you come to realize that a lot of parents really don't have the emotional maturity that's needed to give those kids that solid sense of attachment and security. And when you have a book like mine that goes out there and suddenly there are all these people who are responding to this concept about emotionally immature parents, it tells me that there's a lot more of it than even you might think. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on why it would be so common? You know, what what contributes to making so many emotionally immature parents? Well, if you think about emotionally mature parents being the children of people who really were growing up in the early to mid part of the 20th century, there was really not a lot of emphasis on the emotional needs of children. They were doing well to raise people's awareness of the physical needs of children, you know, such as getting rid of the child workplaces or making sure that children had enough to eat. But around about the 1950s, there was a pediatrician, Benjamin Spock, who began to push this idea that children had emotional needs and that meeting the child's emotional needs had tremendous importance in their adult life. And so there was an awakening. 
And so for people listening right now who might be recognising themselves as, um, you know, the child of an emotionally immature parent, what should you do about it? Or, and are you doomed to repeat, you know, that behaviour unless you do something about it? Yeah, I, I think what we call psychoeducation is huge. And, and that's part of the movement that I hope that my books would support. Because if you don't know about these concepts, then your only conclusion can be, you know, either there's something terribly wrong with your parent, or there's something terribly wrong with yourself. But when you understand that emotional immaturity is a phenomenon, then you have conceptual power over your experience. And you no longer have to automatically react in a kind of a psychologically blind way. Instead, you can see it for what it is and gradually begin to not take it personally anymore that your parent has trouble with emotional intimacy or that parent doesn't control their anger. So the psychoeducation is incredibly important for people to begin to look at their parents in a different way, not to malign the parent, but to understand the parent's limitations and thereby begin to grieve the loss of the hope that that parent could be the ideal parent that they always wanted. Because that's, you know, of course, that's a, a healing fantasy that all children have. And is it possible to maintain a healthy and sort of safe relationship with a, an emotionally immature parent? That's a great question. <laughs> because you said healthy and safe, right? So it's not my definition of a healthy and safe relationship because health to me means that both people flourish. And the dynamic of the emotionally immature relationship is that the emotionally mature person tries to flourish at the expense of the other person. And it's certainly not a safe relationship because if you don't agree to be under the control and the approval of the emotionally immature person, then you're likely to get a lot of blowback, a lot of criticism, a lot of pouting, a lot of withdrawal, a lot of cold shoulders. So, yeah, I don't know that I would call it healthy or safe, but I think it's possible to have a relatively pleasant relationship. It just depends on your ability to maintain a kind of a neutrality and not get sucked into, you know, their immature demands or their insistent kind of needs. Yeah, what would you be your advice to someone who sort of wants to enact boundaries so as to maintain some semblance of a relationship with their parents without, you know, totally cutting them off, but more so on their terms. Yeah. And, and actually, that is what I recommend. Because when you cut off a parent, it's, it's a pretty big decision. However, if that parent is really destructive, if that parent is affecting your health or your well-being, Sometimes you have to take a break, and it may be an extended break, maybe a break that lasts for the rest of your life. There's nothing wrong with that, but I just try to encourage people to learn how to actively set boundaries. A good example is that sometimes these kinds of parents will 
force things, like they'll give gifts that you don't want, they'll insist on visits that you don't want. And if you learn how to say no in whatever awkward, frightened, shy way that you want to say no, but you just continue to say what your limits are, that really works pretty well. Because emotionally immature people are not prepared for repetition. (laughs) They expect that you're going to do this dance where they ask you for something, you say no, they keep on, and then you give in and feel guilty. But if you just continue to say no, after a while, they really don't have anything to say because there's nowhere for them to go. But that's a very hard thing for an adult child to do, but it can be done, and that's the way to do it. Why do people, you know, give so much leeway to their parents? Why do we allow them to treat us so badly over so many years? Because we're scared of them. I mean, you have to remember that when this all started, you know, you were three feet tall and they were nearly six feet tall. Uh, You're living with a bad-tempered giant growing up. (laughs) That's a great way of putting Uh, it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's very scary. Without that giant you cannot survive. And so fear of that parent's reactions is a very, very healthy survival mechanism for all children. Boundaries are something Mandy tried to establish with her parents many times over, but it never seemed to work. And of course it all got worse when they realized that I was queer. I kept establishing boundaries around it where I was like, look, my identity is not up for debate. That was completely dismissed. By 2020, she'd finally saved enough money to move out of her parents' home for good. She currently has no contact with them, and it's been that way for about six months. I started realizing, well, me being here isn't safe. Maybe I'm technically allowed to stay here. They didn't technically kick me out. But they created an unsafe environment for me to the point where I knew it was best for me to leave. Mandy now runs an online forum where other children of difficult parents can swap survival stories, share encouragement, and try and heal. It's worth realizing that you are deserving of having boundaries. You're deserving of that even in situations that are not extreme. In the group, we will sometimes joke around that, you know, it's not about playing trauma Olympics. It's not like... Oh, but this person had more trauma, so, you know, they're more deserving of boundaries. And it's like, it's not a competition. (laughs) Nobody's trying to win by having more trauma. You are deserving of being respected as a person. Have you seen many cases where parents sort of eventually gain insight and come to accept how their behavior impacted their kids? Or does that not really happen? No, I have seen instances of that. In fact, um, just yesterday, I had a call from a man who said that he was estranged from both of his children, and one of his children had sent him my book, and he wanted to get an appointment because he wanted to change. That's amazing when that happens. (laughs) Often that's not what happens. But it's interesting because, I mean, it gives me hope because... You know, when the culture changes, when the concepts change, a lot of people can begin to become more self-reflective. I mean, look at what's happened with our awareness of 
child abuse or police overuse of force. I mean, these are things that used to be accepted as completely normal. As for how to be a good parent, it's really quite simple. All you have to do is to not only love your child, but be able to see your child as a unique individual who has a real internal world of their own, where everything is just as important as it is to the adult. And there have always been parents who had that sensitivity, thank goodness. That's clinical psychologist Lindsay Gibson. She's also the author of the books Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents and Recovering from Emotionally Immature Parents. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Our producer is James Bullen. Sound engineer is Emrys Cronin. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.